This is Renee from St. Mary's, Georgia, and you are listening to California Dreamin' on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreamy is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get started. As always, I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on. By spreading the word, by recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than a dozen exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to all those episodes. This week, I would like to thank Andrea H., Brett M., Carrie J., Stephen W., Tracy H., and Jessica H. for joining Patreon and supporting the show. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help support, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for all of your support. Early on a summer morning at approximately 6.20 a.m., on July 29, 1995, 17-year-old James Patterson, along with seven of his friends, began making their way home from an overnight camping trip from somewhere in a desolate section of the Mojave Desert, situated just north of the city of Victorville, California. James's dad had allowed him to take his 1987 Chevy Suburban for one night for the trip. But as he drove along the stretch of road that he was traversing, somehow, he lost control of the 5,000-pound or 2,268-kilogram SUV. The vehicle went into a spin that could only be described as a somersault, cartwheeling across the desert landscape, kicking up plumes of sand and dust with every revolution. And with every tumble and turn, one by one, one after another, his friends were ejected from the vehicle as it spun, tossing them onto the ground. A trail of destruction and teenagers strewn about. As the tumbling vehicle came to its final resting place, as the dust began to settle and the reality began to sink in, these friends, who had just spent an evening together, laughing, enjoying the night, were now broken and scattered, 
laying on the floor of the Mojave. Four of them would never get up. Half of their group was gone. In a matter of the few seconds that it took for that SUV to tumble, four lives gone. Four families who were about to get the news that their lives had just been destroyed. Four promising futures whose potential would never be realized. When it finally came to a stop, the Suburban, having run out of momentum, the driver, James, was still seated in the driver's seat. He slowly gathered his wits. His eyes came into focus. I wonder what sounds he was hearing in those first moments when his vehicle would spin no more. Maybe he was hearing sounds of the last pieces of glass falling around him. He could see pieces of what had once been the windows shimmering across the desert as the rising sun reflected off each shattered piece. I wonder if anyone who had once been seated with him was making any kind of sound at all, or was there just a deafening silence? A group of friends, eight teenage boys, I can imagine rarely them finding themselves in a moment of complete calm and stillness. Yet, there they were. Not everyone had been ejected from the suburban. James first spotted Jonathan, and it was immediately obvious that he was gone. Next, looking behind him in the back seat, he saw John. He too was dead. The other five friends, however, were no longer inside the vehicle. James glanced around, and that's where he saw the rest. Stephen C., Tony, Drake, Joe, and Pig, which is a nickname. His given name is Stephen also, so I'm going to call him Stephen and the other Stephen C. As quickly as he could, James rushed over to his friends, one at a time, hoping to find life in any of them, pleading with them to please be alive. When the vehicle began its tumble, spewing glass, pieces of metal, and bodies as it went along, there had been some other groups of people nearby, a group that had set up camp, and another out there for a weekend of dirt biking. Their first thought was when they saw the huge spiral of smoke and dust rising from the ground that a small plane must have crashed into the desert. They rushed to the scene to see if there was anything or anyone that could be helped. They found James. He had crumpled to the ground holding the hand of his best friend since childhood, Stephen. As the campers and the dirt bikers got closer, James looked up at them filled with anguish, crying uncontrollably. He told them he had killed his friends. This was all his fault. He was right. This was his fault. Emergency services were called, and when the California Highway Patrol arrived, they could smell the alcohol on his breath a mile away. A blood test would later reveal that James was indeed legally intoxicated when he got behind the wheel to drive his seven passengers. James Patterson could have very well been looking at the inside of a prison cell for a very, very long time. Had this accident occurred two months later, 
after James's 18th birthday. Yes, when this accident occurred, when James was driving his dad's SUV, legally drunk, he was still a juvenile. He was also an honor student, ranked nearly at the top of his class where he was about to begin his senior year that fall at Catella High School in Anaheim, California. A top student, an Eagle Scout, just an all-around good kid. Had it been two months later, he'd be looking at some hard time. What do you get when you drive drunk and kill your passengers? Back then, he wouldn't be in prison for the rest of his life, but he'd definitely be looking at quite a while behind bars. But because he was only 17, in the eyes of the law, he would still be considered, at worst, a delinquent. James Patterson would be taking responsibility for killing four of his friends. 18-year-old John Thornton and 16-year-old Jonathan Favreau died inside the vehicle, seatbelted to their seats. 18-year-old Stephen Bender and 17-year-old Tony Fuentes had been ejected from the vehicle and killed. The three others, Stephen C., Drake, and Joe, were tossed from the vehicle. They were seriously injured but survived the crash. A total of 72 cans of beer, some empty, some unopened, were scattered across the crash site as well. James, who was wearing his seatbelt, had a blood alcohol content of 0.16, which is twice the legal limit in California. Eight months after the accident, in March of 1996, James would plead guilty to four counts of vehicular manslaughter, as well as two counts of felony drunk driving. In juvenile court in San Bernardino County, he would be sentenced to 120 days in jail and 120 days of rehab. Though he would be able to continue his studies to complete his senior year at Catella High, he would not be permitted to participate in any of his senior class activities. He would not be walking with his classmates at graduation. But that is all that could be done. No matter what prosecutors or the parents of the dead would have wanted, they were bound by the confines of the law. James was still a child. It's chilling to think about what a difference those two months would have made. But James wasn't going to get off completely easy. He had the families of four people who saw nothing but their children's blood on the hands of James Patterson. They were going to be able to be there that morning of James's sentencing to deliver their impact statements, to tell him exactly what his actions did to each of their lives. James would be made to face the parents of each of his friends who lost their life that morning as a result of his actions. I can only imagine what it's like being James in that moment. To look at his friends' moms, dads, not to mention all the other relatives they were flanked by, grandparents, aunts, uncles, everyone there to slowly, heartbreakingly, one by one, all of them consumed with where to place the blame for all of this. Where would you place the blame? Was this some sort of punishment from God? Was this his will? Maybe this is fate. Everything happens for a reason, right? 
Maybe it's the beer. If it weren't for the beer, none of this would have happened. As for the parents, could they possibly blame themselves? Maybe it wasn't such a great idea to allow eight teenagers to go on this overnight excursion without anyone in charge or to supervise. Well, if they had been told they needed adult supervision, they probably wouldn't have gone. With 72 cans of beer, drinking was clearly the intent. Parental supervision would have probably shot those plans down quickly. Ultimately, on sentencing day, each parent, every one of them, would be there to absolve themselves of the question of where to place blame. They would be there to lay the blame at the feet of James Patterson. The entire gallery in the courtroom was packed with people there to represent the four dead boys, all of them there to ensure that James understands the depth and gravity of what he caused. As for James, though he is tall, he's lean, he's strong, having been a member of the school's water polo team, as was almost everyone who was with him the day that he rolled that SUV. He still bore the face of a child. He couldn't or wouldn't make eye contact with anyone, casting his eyes downward, blinking hard, and he was clearly quivering with nervousness. A couple of days after the accident, James had gone to a place called Good Time Charlie's Tattoo Land. He walked in with three friends, the three that had survived the accident in the desert. They spoke to the artist that was there that day. They told the tale of the horrific crash that they had survived a few days earlier, but they had lost four of their best friends, and they were there to memorialize their friends together with matching tattoos. On the back of each of their right legs, they had the letters PJTJ inked onto their bodies. When speaking of his interactions with James, the artist who did the work said it was clear that the burden of what they'd gone through weighed heavily on him. James was quiet. He seemingly stared off, mostly not paying attention, like he was someplace else in his thoughts. And it was much of the same on sentencing day when he was in court. James wasn't alone, though. His family, of course, had come to support him. His parents, Mom Elizabeth and Dad David. Mom was a clerk for the Orange County Marshal. Dad had been a Marine, having served in Vietnam. James wanted to be like his dad. After high school, he planned on enlisting as well. Just another dream and another future shattered. Also present were James's younger siblings, his 16-year-old sister, Vianne, and 14-year-old brother, Sam. And they appeared just as shaken, if not more so, than their brother, James. David and Elizabeth had once been friends with several of the parents who were there that day to lay into their son. Those friendships died in the desert that morning of the crash as well. None of the Pattersons, neither his mother, his father, nor James himself, had breathed a single word to the media or to anyone about the crash since the day it happened, with the exception of an offering of condolences to the families of the dead, and to point out 
that their son was being treated unfairly in the media and by the attorneys of the families who have been openly and publicly blaming James for the accident since day one. Aside from his parents, James did have a small army of supporters that consisted of his friends and classmates. On sentencing day, they opted to gather outside. They didn't really seem to mind. The gallery, after all, was filled with relatives and loved ones of those who died. But James's friends, for what it's worth, remained loyal from the beginning of this tragedy. They gathered at every court date whenever they could. When he was remanded to house arrest, they would come over and keep him company, spending the night, doing what they could to help him not have to go through this alone. They stood up for him at every turn. They stood by him, speaking out publicly in his defense whenever anyone had anything negative to say to the media. They'd even launched a successful campaign to have James nominated for Homecoming King, and this was just months following the crash. Though the principal of the school stepped in and spoke to James and encouraged him to not accept the nomination, which James did eventually turn down. So how was it that James managed to garner such staunch supporters amongst his peers in school? I mean, he did drive drunk and caused a crash that killed four of their classmates. Well, as it turned out, his friends had poured over the police report related to James's case and they believe that it's full of lies. For starters, they don't believe the report that puts James's alcohol content at 0.16%, even though blood tests have placed it at that level. James was supposed to have been the designated driver for that overnight camping trip. They believe that while everyone else stayed up drinking all night, James, even if he had been drinking the night before, got at least five hours of sleep so he could make the drive home. They don't believe the blood test was accurate. They believe him to have been sober at the time he lost control of the vehicle, at least sober enough to drive, that this was all a terrible accident and nothing more. Even one of the survivors of the crash, 18-year-old Drake Gustafson, had an interesting thought when it came to James and his level of intoxication. Whatever James still had in his system that morning that he was driving with seven passengers in the car, it was most likely better than if he had been completely sober. So what's his logic behind this? Well, to him, if James had been sober, he would have probably been driving faster and then he would have lost control of the vehicle, stating, what if James was sober? He'd probably think he could handle the Suburban. He'd be going faster. We'd probably have rolled 12 times and everyone would have been killed. Drake's theory is not one that makes a whole lot of sense to me. The three survivors, aside from James, the driver himself, had all been tossed from the SUV and survived. So the vehicle making more revolutions than it did wouldn't have made that much of a difference with perhaps the exception of James. A few more tumbles may have killed him as well. But the tumbles the car had actually made killed the passengers who were still seated inside the vehicle with him. It's also worth noting that as a result of this accident, Drake suffered some pretty serious head injuries, including a fracture to his skull and some severe bruising on his face, which caused at least one permanent side effect, 
He lost all ability to smell and taste. There is no reason to believe that the blood alcohol content in his blood being 0.16% isn't accurate. And considering that it was taken some time after the accident, either James was still intoxicated from a whole night of drinking or had continued drinking into the early morning hours of the crash. And it wouldn't be a stretch to assume that his judgment could have been impaired, not only from the drinking, but also having gotten minimal sleep as well. Drake would later be asked if he learned any lessons from this ordeal, from what he'd gone through. And his answer? No. He didn't learn anything. This was just an accident. And not only do these friends of James stand by him in their belief that all of this was a terrible accident, they also believe that the reports are inaccurate and the media had been portraying him unfairly. There are those who had known him and gone to school with him since kindergarten who would attest to James's adamant stance on the dangers of drinking and driving. He would be that one friend who would stop you from driving if he thought you were too intoxicated to do so. He would be that guy who'd take your keys from you and not allow you to leave a party where the alcohol was free-flowing. And this was a refrain about James that was heard over and over again. Some of his friends would even go so far to say he's probably saved a lot of them from getting in trouble, from getting hurt, from hurting someone else, or even worse. Out of all the people they knew and partied with, James, he was known to be the responsible one. Now, all of these testaments to James and his normal, responsible behaviors are all fine and good, you know, but we here listening, of course, didn't know James and his group of friends. And if he was indeed that guy that cared enough and was in a frame of mind to take notice and intervene, if he saw something troubling, great. But it leaves me wondering exactly how accurate all of this really is. I mean, okay, so obviously he parties regularly and drinks regularly enough for people to say that he's always the reasonable one. But we're still talking about a 17-year-old kid who is partying and drinking on a regular basis. So how responsible could he really be considered to be? The fact that he had with him seven of his friends, all of them underaged, driving them in his dad's Suburban with more than 70 beers with them in the car at the time of the crash. That's not even to say how many they could have possibly left behind at their campsite before driving off that morning. All of this flies in the face of all these people referring to James as being the most responsible out of their entire group. And considering the behavior of all these boys, calling James the responsible one isn't really saying much. And him going to the desert, entrusted with his dad's vehicle, with all that beer, and how they got their hands on all of that beer could have been any number of things. An older friend, an older sibling, perhaps even somebody's parent wanting to be the cool parent. Maybe a fake ID, even a lackadaisical store clerk. Either way, Mr. Responsibility here, with all of that, either set aside his own rules, he threw caution to the wind, or he just figured he was sober enough. But obviously, he was wrong. And another contention from the camp of James supporters the parents should be made to bear some of the blame for what happened in the Mojave Desert that morning. 
if not be blamed just as much as they want to blame James. It was apparently common knowledge that most, if not all, the parents were aware that their sons were drinking alcohol. Some of the parents, according to at least one of James's friends, allowed drinking to take place in their home. And all of them had apparently given their permission for their boys to go on this camping trip. James's dad having loaned them his SUV that was capable of seating all eight of them. And it is believed that they knew there would be beer going along on this trip. Now this, coming from one of James's friends who wasn't there, it only serves to help James's case to claim everyone knew about it and was on board with letting eight 16 to 18 year olds head out to the desert for a night of drinking. Do I believe that? Mm, I'm skeptical. I don't think every parent would be like, oh yeah, sure, go ahead, drive out to the desert with your seven drinking buddies with no adult supervision, see you in the morning. I highly doubt it. If I were to guess, they had limited knowledge as to where their kids were possibly going. They may not have known that they were headed 100 miles or 161 kilometers away to the desert. It was not unrealistic to believe that one of those kids told their parents that they were staying the night at someone else's house. I know as a parent, I would not have allowed my daughter to go with her friends to the desert without any parents, especially if I knew drinking was happening. So I don't believe that all of these parents knew exactly what was going on and gave permission for their kids to go do whatever their kids told them that they were going to do. And I seriously doubt that they told their parents that the eight of them were going on their own to the desert with six dozen beers. With that being said, James's supporters believe that because the parents have been so loosey-goosey with their kids, allowing them to drink so freely, that they have no right to sit there and blame James completely. They too should be made to shoulder the responsibility as well. The ensuing investigation would lead to some answers to these questions. But first I asked in the Facebook group, just out of curiosity, if anyone thinks it's acceptable to allow underage drinking within the confines of their own home and under their supervision, and would they allow it themselves? And here are some of your answers. Lindsay G. said, only your own children and no one else's. Elizabeth T. said that this is a slippery legal slope and was curious to know if all the parents involved knew that drinking was going on. And for that, I'd say in this case, it seems like most, if not all, the parents knew to some degree. Samantha L. said her brother's friends allowed their group of guys to drink at their house, but told all of the parents before they gave them any and took away their keys. If the parents were not okay with it, they wouldn't let them have any. So keeping the other parents in the loop if you're going to let drinking go on at your house is the idea here. Samantha also said that her parents allowed them to drink with the family at home or when they went camping, but they weren't allowed to leave by any mode of transportation. She didn't drink until she was 18, but drinking with her parents taught her how to not go too crazy. Tanya T. came once again with her non-answer answer, but I think she kind of gave us an answer. She grew up in Canada with Spanish parents, and they were allowed to have some wine diluted down with some 7-Up. And now if she's having any alcohol, she lets her son smell it and then asks him if he wants a drop. 
She tries to make it normal so it's not a big deal. Crystal P. said she would say no based on what happened to an underclassmate of hers. A parent allowed their child to have a party and all the keys were taken away when they walked in the front door. After a couple hours, the parents went to lay down and two of the boys decided that they were going to leave and found the bowl with the keys. Ten minutes later, one boy was dead and the other was hospitalized for several months. And another Crystal P. said, Only your own children and not drinking to get drunk or drinking being the only activity. Maybe some wine or beer at dinner with the family is okay. Sitting around getting drunk with dad on the porch, not so much. Virginia M. said she would never serve alcohol to an underage child, especially someone else's. Sarah P. said if her kids want to try alcohol in the future and they're not yet 21, then only at home and the purpose is not to get drunk. And absolutely not for their friends or kids that aren't hers. Maureen said she would let her 15-year-old have a beer or a glass of wine, but not anyone else's underage kids. Mar W. said when her child reaches 10 or 11, if he wants a small, tiny glass of wine with dinner on occasion, that they would allow it. But other people's kids, absolutely not. If you make it too taboo, you create unnecessary interest and mystery. It's her child, her home, her rules. Andrea M. said that they are European and 18 is adult to them. She has three grown kids and never had issues with drinking. Amanda W. said, coming from an alcoholic family, she personally wouldn't. She remembers getting sips of her parents' beer when she was little and she is not a drinker. A sip of wine here or there is fine, but knowing what she knows and has seen, she won't allow drinking in her home. Amanda added in her replies that she was in foster care for six years because of her parents' drinking, but is grateful for the experience because she has no idea where she'd be if she had stayed in that environment. Louise W. said it's different over in the UK, so the answer is hard. The legal drinking age is 18, but you can get away with drinking in lots of places by the time kids turn 16 or 17. Dave W. said he has alcohol-related PTSD, so it's a no for him. But he has allowed his 18-year-old to have a beer. But when it comes to a party, there is just too much liability. Amanda E. said she would never, but her stepdaughters have a long history of addiction in their family, and they were abandoned by their mother, who put her addiction first over them. But she's made it clear that alcohol isn't the villain. It's just the vehicle her addiction took form. So for her, it wasn't about whether or not it's okay, but it's not up to her. It's illegal for minors to have alcohol, and she expects her kids to respect that. For Suzanne R., it's a flat-out no. Debbie B. said she let her daughter have a drink when she was 20, but she did not leave the house under any circumstances. She's 21 now, and she won't get into a car if she's had any alcohol, and she won't drive with anyone if they had any either. Justin R. said that for him, it depends on the age and maturity level of the minor. His two boys are pretty wild, but somewhat mature for their age. He doesn't drink or smoke around them either, so there are other factors that need to be considered. Matt N. said for his own kids, probably not. Someone else's kids, hell no. Mary G. said it depends. She would probably let her college-age kids drink at home, like an occasional beer at a cookout, 
but she wouldn't allow them to have a party and allow alcohol, that there are too many liability issues. Rebecca M. said, your own kids, yes, other people, kids, no. Again, it's a liability thing. Sue B. said, only her own children would be allowed to drink at her house. Phyllis S. said that they allowed their daughter to have a glass of wine before she turned 21, but never any of her underage friends. Samantha C. said her own children, yes, but no binge drinking. As for other people's kids, she would need their parents' approval. Tracy D. said she doesn't have kids, but because her family has a history of addiction and struggles with alcohol, it would be a no. She would not allow it. Melinda C. said her own kids, yeah, maybe a beer on a milestone birthday like 16 or 18. But also her husband is German and the attitudes towards drinking is different and the drinking age is lower as well. But again, never anyone else's kids. Alexandra G. said no. Candace L. also no. Ryan Cleveland, yes, he would. Sandra C. said yes on special occasions, which is what her parents did but only her children and only a small glass. Nicole A. said when she turned 18, her mom was okay with a beer or two at a cookout at their home, but she wasn't allowed to leave. Stephanie K. said she would not allow it. Laura L. said just her own kid, maybe a sip or two, but she's not sure. She thinks it would bother her. Her boy looks older, but he's totally immature and she could already see him saying and doing something dumb. She also doesn't want to be the reason if he were to develop an addiction. It gives her anxiety. She did stupid stuff when she was her son's age, and she's tried telling him, but it always backfires. Joyce L. said no. There's too much alcoholism in her family. Mike M., or you know him as Morph, said he grew up in a small town, and everyone loved to party. They were next to a military base, and they would be able to bribe the guys in basic training to buy them beer. When he got older, they partied at their friend's house and they knew the rule was if they were to drink there, they slept there and it was only beer, no hard stuff. There'd be like six or seven of them and the mom would set up all the beds and couches and cots for everyone to sleep on as they knew realistically that the kids were going to drink anyway. But that was him and the same doesn't apply to his own kids. He would not want parents allowing his kids to drink, but that may change when they get older but he doesn't see himself allowing underage drinking in his home with his kids or anyone else's. Trina G said that she would, but with the understanding that they needed to hand over their keys if they were going to drink and no drinking just to get drunk. Otherwise they'd have to sleep on the floor. Chris T said that this is a hard question because she's lost friends to drunk driving. She doesn't think that if you don't allow your kid to drink at home, that they're not going to do it elsewhere. Not allowing your kid to drink at home won't stop them from doing it, and it won't stop them from becoming an alcoholic, but being open and honest with them might keep them from getting behind the wheel while drinking, and they may be comfortable enough to call you when they do drink. Her idea is to just help your kids get through the teenage years until they are mature enough to make their own choices. Mary Jo said nope. Todd M. also no. Sarah W. said it's fine to allow your own kids to drink moderately at home with you, but not okay to have other people's kids over to drink. Vicki G. said no. Erin F. said her mom let her drink supervised when she was a teen, but she never drank too much, and she never went through a drinking phase, and she thinks it helps to make drinking less taboo. 
so she has no desire to abuse it. Vicky S. said no way. Michelle G. also no. Angela M. said she'd rather her kids be with her than on the street. Mason M. said hell no. Abigail S. said she would not. Tina E. said she allowed her older daughters to have some champagne on New Year's Eve, but never anyone else's kids and never very much. Melissa V. suggested to know your laws, no matter how you feel about it, the liability can be very high. Donna S. said only if the other parents of the other kids are aware of exactly what's going on. They're going to find ways to drink and party unsupervised, and she would rather have it happen where she can monitor it. As a teenage drinker herself, she remembers being in lots of dangerous situations, and she would want to prevent that as much as possible by letting her kids have a get-together at her house. And there's another Michelle G. who said, no, no, no. All that happens with this is promoting drinking, and it's never a good idea. Sally M. said it's a strong no on this one, though her husband was raised differently in Louisiana where alcohol is everywhere, and it is not uncommon for kids to be drinking regularly. Anne-Marie B. said she was allowed to drink in front of her parents, so by the time she was legal, the desire had passed. She would really have to think it over as to whether or not she would allow her own kids to drink in front of her. Cindy B. said no. When it comes to other children, you don't know their family history and you shouldn't override other parents' rules. Helly K. said not to party drink, but a taste of wine or a low-alcohol beverage for a special occasion starting after the age of 16. The legal drinking age in her country is also 18. Kim C. said her parents allowed her, so drinking wasn't a big deal. Her dad caved into her begging when she was in sixth grade and let her have the liquor that had the rock candy in it. She wanted another and another and then threw it all up, and her lesson was learned. Dej R. said he grew up party drinking at home, and looking back, he would not allow it in his own home. Felicia S. said she's okay with her own kids at the age of 18, a glass or two of wine on special occasions, and they would not be allowed to drive, and never anyone else's kids. Dea C. said her kids could try it after the age of 16, but they aren't going anywhere, and other people's kids, no. But her real plan is to have her kids drink enough to puke and then not want to try it again. Roy S. pointed out that this is an American problem, not anywhere else in other countries, particularly Europe. Kylie R. said 21 is ridiculous. She's an Australian living in the U.S., and if her kids want a drink at a more reasonable age, she would allow it, but not their friends. Carol L. said it depends on the kid. Liberty G. said that she thinks she would. She would rather have them drink around her where it's safe as opposed to a party where they could get hurt or worse. Anna W. said learning to drink responsibly is best taught at home by the parents unless they're alcoholics. At what age is up to the parents? Her mom taught her around 15 what wines go with what foods and champagne on New Year's Eve, but never that much. Kids are going to get wasted one way or another, so why not teach them? So she would probably do like her mom did if she ever has kids and if they're mature enough, but never anyone else's kids unless there is an explicit understanding with the other parents. Sarah R. said yes. She was raised with loose reins. She barely drinks now as an adult. Her mom wanted to teach them responsible drinking rather than going behind her back, getting wasted and putting themselves in danger. And she's in Ireland where the minimum age is 18 
and she plans to do the same if her kid is responsible. And in a side note, she thinks the minimum age in the U.S. being 21 is ridiculous. I have no real strong opinion about it personally because it's just always been that way. And where we live here in Southern California when I was younger, you didn't need a passport to go in and out of Mexico. And over there, the drinking age is 18. So I had friends that would just head there on holidays and stuff if they wanted to drink. Rebecca J said the minimum age in the UK is 18, but still, it's a no for her. She lived with an alcoholic and she's not a fan of drinking. Kelly M said she would allow it with her own kids, but after the age of 18 and never anyone else's kids. Their parents would have to be there. Mo O said over 18, yes, under 18, no. Marcy K said absolutely not. Karen R. said when she grew up, her house was the party house, but today she wouldn't allow it. Calf M. said with their own kids, yes, and it depends on their age. There isn't a problem, but there would be a problem if the kids were too young, like a nine-year-old. That's not cool at all. Mary A. said it's okay for parents to allow their own kids to drink, but not anyone else's. Her parents allowed her to take sips of wine, and it took the mystery of it away, and really caused her to not be all that interested. Laura O. said she did her heaviest drinking at the age of 16 with her parents, and she had a stepdad that encouraged it. On one New Year's Eve, they had a drinking contest, and she got so bad she couldn't walk. She was then taken to the bathroom, got sick, passed out, and ended up in her bed and had no idea where she was. And her stepdad recorded the whole thing and shared it with his friends. So, to answer the question... Giving your kids a beer now and then is okay, but no hard drinking. She had a hard time quitting and too many embarrassing moments. My friend Ed was being sarcastic when he said, hey, if they can make it taste good, sure. And I take it, Ed, considering everything, you are not a drinker and you are not going to be serving your kids anytime soon, I'm sure. And lastly, Terry V said, yes, once they are 18, she will share a drink with her kids at home. She's had some wine with her son's best friend who was in college, but he had to stay the night and it had to be a special occasion. Young people are drinking, so may as well allow it to do it in the safety of her home, but only after the age of 18. That was a really long discussion, and I want to thank you for all of your answers and opinions. I'm in the camp that would say it depends on the kid. We would have to have trust, and I wouldn't want my daughter out drinking. I'd rather her be home, and I would not allow her friends to drink. I wouldn't want my kid drinking at anyone else's house either. So back to our story. To make matters worse, compounding the grief for the families and the loved ones of the four boys that died, some of their classmates had put bows on six-packs and cases of beer and left them at each of their graves. A wooden sign was erected at the site of the crash that read Bruise Forever. But James's friends would insist that wasn't a reference to beer, but rather a song by No Effects entitled We're the Bruise, which has nothing to do with beer. So at the sentencing, Stephen C., by then a member of the United States military, came to speak for his friend. As a result of the crash, he sustained some very serious injuries that took months to recover from, including a broken clavicle and numerous broken ribs. 
And in open court, he would say that if James was drunk the morning that they got into the accident, then, well, they were all drunk because none of them realized that James was too inebriated to drive. So despite what his friends want to think, the boys were drunk when the accident occurred. All of them were, and it was proven to be a fact. As police investigated the case, they discovered prior to leaving the city of Anaheim to head out to the overnight trip in the Mojave, they stopped at a local liquor store called Me and Paul's. The kids liked that place, obviously because the clerk sold them dozens of beers that day. That's where they got all that beer. They didn't need an older buddy. They didn't need fake IDs. All they needed was a connection at a liquor store willing to take their money and look the other way. Incidentally, the store clerk was charged in the wake of the accident, as was the owner of the liquor store. But a jury would ultimately acquit the clerk of all charges against him. And as for the owner, the jury deadlocked. He would not be retried. The investigation ultimately revealed that someone else was responsible for James getting his hands on alcohol. His own dad. Five days after James crashed his dad's SUV, killing four of his friends, officers from the California Highway Patrol spoke to his dad, David Patterson. They had some hard questions they needed answers to. Namely, why is it that his son was allowed to walk out of their home with a case of Henry Weinhardt's private reserve that his parents had in the fridge? Dad drew in a deep breath, and he had no answer. Along with the throngs of grieving parents and relatives were advocates representing mothers against drunk driving, or MAD for short. At the helm, a woman named Rydell Post, the executive director of the Orange County chapter of MAD. On May 2, 1988, Rydell was headed to pick up her kids from school, Obviously, this was the middle of the day when her vehicle was struck head-on by a drunk driver. As she was being airlifted to the emergency room at Western Medical Center, those attending to her in the helicopter radioed the emergency room staff to prepare for a DOA victim, a dead on arrival. She survived, but the physical scars left her permanently disfigured but the emotional scars were much more devastating, leading to her having reached a low point where she did not have the will or desire to go on. But Mad had come to her and provided her with the support she needed. She would go on to volunteer for the chapter, eventually becoming the executive director. She is considered a crusader for survivors and victims' families, and for this case, she became immersed, so moved by the anguish of the parents of James's victims, as it was unlike any case she had encountered up to that point. And it was her intention to make James the poster child for all things wrong with underage drinking, and to make sure that this wasn't going to be written off as just an accident. This was a conscious choice that James made, enabled by his parents. While the parents of the kids that died that day were prepared to read James the Riot Act when they got the chance, 
By stark contrast, the parents of those who survived the crash were amongst James's staunchest supporters. Stephen's mom, who was present in court on sentencing day as well, saw what was happening to James as being akin to a lynch mob. She holds them responsible for each one of their kids getting into that SUV with James. To her, it was obvious that none of them were keeping a keen watch on what their children were doing. And now for them to be coming down so hard on James with their pain and anger directed all towards him, it is not something that he deserves to carry the entire weight of on his shoulders alone. If those parents had come down on their own kids in the same manner that they were doing to James, perhaps their children would still be alive today. Now that's not to say Stephen's mom wasn't part of the procession of parents who wanted to see James to never see the outside of a jail cell for the rest of his life. She was there too. When she had gone to the hospital, once she got the call of what happened, as soon as she went into the room where James was, the smell of alcohol was still emanating from him. It filled the room, and she yelled at him and accused him of lying to her when he said he wasn't going to drink and drive. He had apparently made that promise to his friend's mother at some point. He promised her he swore that he wasn't drunk. He told her through his tears that when the car rolled, that the beers came flying out of the cooler, bursting open and covering him in beer. And she believed him from then on. He smelled like beer so strongly because it was spilled on him, not because he'd been drinking all night. The first parent to deliver her impact statement was Jonathan's mom, Laura. She was wearing his letterman's jacket. She wore it whenever she visited her son's grave. He was laid to rest next to his friends, Stephen and John, at Pacific View Memorial Park, which is located in Newport Beach. The fourth, Tony, he is buried close to where his father resides in La Mirada, California, which is in the northernmost end of Orange County. Well, actually, now that I think about it, it is technically in Los Angeles County, though it's one of those cities that straddles the border. Laura talked about visiting her son. She plays Jimi Hendrix music for him every weekend when she goes to see him. As the music plays from her radio that she leaves perched atop his headstone, she cleans it up and she puts down a few trinkets and decorations. She talked about the 30 hours of labor that she went through to bring Jonathan into the world. She had once been told that she would never be able to have children after a history of terminated pregnancies, both intentional and miscarriages. She was told that she was a hemophiliac. She couldn't have kids. She'd bleed to death. But she told the courtroom that Jonathan would not be stopped coming into this world. Nothing stopped him, she said. Nothing until James Patterson. She looked at him and let one more word escape from her letting it hang in the courtroom. Accountable. She had been one of the parents that did not forbid her son from drinking. She wanted to teach him how to be responsible as a drinker, 
and on at least one occasion she allowed for a party to be hosted at her home where her son and his friends were served alcohol. However, she insisted that one of the kids was assigned the duty of designated driver, and just because she, along with a number of other parents, allowed their kids to drink at parties under their watchful adult supervision, doesn't mean James is absolved of being held fully responsible for what he did. Speaking directly to James, she said, The loss of Jonathan caused a wake-up into a reality that is hopeless and dark. The past is a beautiful, carefree dream that I will never have again. If I didn't have two young children, I would have no problem or hesitation ending this nightmare I now call my life. Jonathan's dad opted not to attend the sentencing hearing, though mom had encouraged him to go. She wanted him to possibly talk to the judge into handing down a harsher sentence, but he didn't see the point. They had cut a deal with the guilty plea, and that likely wasn't going to change. A couple months in jail, a couple months in rehab, that's what the life of their son and the lives of the three others was worth in the eyes of the law. The other parents were going to come and have their chance to confront James. That was enough for him. Jonathan's dad, an Apache Native American, was a jeweler by trade. He needed to stay home. They still owed thousands of dollars for the funeral costs, and he had to work. It's hard enough as it was getting things done in this life after Jonathan's death, but he had to keep going as best he could in the rare moments his grief loosened its grip over him just enough for him to pound away in his shop. But mostly he sinks himself into participating in his Native American sacraments, connecting with his son's spirit through ritualistic dances and the pounding of a poplar drum. He too visits his son's resting place and plays his flute. When he isn't even up to doing that, he heads to the beach and paddles out on his son's surfboard and meanders across the waters. And even when that is too much, he simply goes into Jonathan's room to take in the smell of his son. He drank when he was a teenager too. He hasn't forgotten what it's like needing to sleep off a night of drinking before being able to drive home. But things were different back then. Kids are talked to in school about the dangers of drinking and driving, and James knew better than to get behind the wheel. His thoughts continuously cycles over and over about the last conversation he had with Jonathan. He asked permission to go on that camping trip with his friends out in the Mojave Desert. Of course, he didn't mention that they were bringing coolers full of beer. After mulling it over for a minute or so, Dad allowed it. He was never much of a disciplinarian, believing his son should be allowed to enjoy his youth. It is fleeting. But the regret Jonathan's father would have to carry with him for the remainder of his days... The regret in allowing his son to go on that camping trip with his friends. It weighs heavy. It's constant and it's unrelenting. 
Jonathan's parents don't know how much their son had to drink that night prior to the morning leading up to the crash. Jonathan's death was instantaneous, blunt force trauma to the head. Whether they knew his blood alcohol content or not at the time of his death, they've never said. But to them, it didn't matter. Jonathan was dead. It's irrelevant. The only thing that mattered to them was how much the driver, the supposed designated driver, James, how much did he have to drink? And what is a just punishment for him anyway? He's still alive. He gets to drink, roll his vehicle, kill four people, and his life goes on. Jonathan's parents see no justice in that at all. But for dad, he takes into consideration the fact that his son and the kid responsible for his son's death were the best of friends. Jonathan loved James like a brother. It's a complicated place for dad to be in, knowing how much James meant to his boy. Jonathan would not want his father to be filled with hatred towards James, and he tries as much as he can to do and be and feel what his son would have wanted for him. Dad finds a measure of solace in the fact that he did the best that he could. Jonathan was his life and his number one priority. He is satisfied with the job that he did in the short time that he got to be his dad. From the day he was born until the day he shoveled dirt into his grave. Not so much for Jonathan's mom, though. She hates James Patterson for what he did. And if she could have had things her way, she would like nothing more than to see him headed death row. And if the time came, she'd more than embrace the pleasure of being the one to flip the switch. And she isn't the only one who feels this sentiment. The next parent to speak to the impact the death of his son, Tony, had on his life was his father, Tony Sr. His niece joined him to lend support. His mornings are consumed with the small shrine that he has put together in his living room. He sits. He looks. Not just at pictures of his only son throughout his life from boyhood to headstone but also to the scene of the crash. Tony Sr. has been unable to find anything in this world to help him feel even a small glimmer of anything that could bring him any kind of joy. Not a flicker, not a split second, nothing, ever. Praying sometimes helps, but it is barely enough. Tony Sr. was a butcher by trade. He worked straight through the year, never taking time off. He would cash in his annual two weeks of vacation pay and use it to surprise his boy with a gift. The year prior to his death, Dad got his son his first car, a 63 Ford Falcon. The next time, his vacation pay went towards his son's headstone, inscribed with Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And like Jonathan's father, Tony Sr. also finds himself in a complicated place 
when it comes to where James fits on his range of emotions. Unlike Jonathan's father, Tony Sr. hates James. To him, James took away the only person he had in life. He had been divorced for several years by the time his son died. And his daughter? Well, there's a divide. James was one of her best friends. They had been classmates and she loved and cared for him. And as much as she loved her brother, she wasn't going to let her love for James turn to hate over this tragedy. And because her dad has made no secret of how he feels towards James, his daughter has chosen to distance herself from him. As Tony Sr., rounding the age of 50, he could not have imagined the nightmare his life had become. No wife, son dead, daughter not speaking to him, and his world is all consumed with loathing and hatred towards this kid that he's never met. And not only does he blame James for what happened, he also blamed his ex-wife. This would have never happened if she hadn't walked out on him and taken the kids with her. His son would have been there with him. He would not have been going to school in Anaheim. He would not have known James. He would not have gone on that camping trip. And he would not be six feet under. And as it were, Tony could not bring himself to speak the words that he had prepared for James the morning of sentencing. So his niece read what he had written for the court. It described getting word that he needed to rush to the medical center in San Bernardino. Getting there as fast as he could. Praying to God that his boy would survive this only to arrive to find his son's wrecked body. His niece continued reading. I never expected to see my son lying in a coma, bleeding from his head, not able to respond to the sound of my voice, lifeless. All the wonderful memories of his life were going through my mind. I prayed and asked God to please let Tony and me walk out of this hospital together. Unfortunately, the worst moment in my entire life was when the doctor arrived and said he was going to pull the life support to see if Tony was able to survive without it. Then the doctor said, I'm sorry, Mr. Fuentes, your son is dead. Through her tears, his niece read on. I wanted to die right there with him. My heart just broke into pieces. My only son had been taken from me, and now I have no one left. Not only was my son taken from me, but it has destroyed my relationship I had with my daughter. I have nightmares of my son trying to tell me something. I hear his voice telling me to not let him die. As his niece finished reading, Tony embraced her. He looked at James, seated at the defendant's table, but his head was down, staring into his lap. James had been threatened by Tony Sr. in the days following the crash. He wanted retribution, and James feared him. And he had good reason to, as it felt like Tony Sr. had nothing to live for anymore. Once his niece had finished, they made their way back to their seats in the gallery. 
but this was quickly followed up by his daughter marching her way up to the lectern. My brother was not killed by anyone. He died in a car accident. Hearing this caused James to break down into tears. And his mother, seated nearby, did what she could to comfort him, offering him some tissues. Tony's daughter went on to commend James for his willingness to take responsibility, to have the veracity and the heart to do so. Tony was her brother and she loved him. They were the best of friends. But so was James and his pain pains her. As tears began to well, her father could not help but want to come forward to comfort her, but she pulled back and demanded that he sit back down. Do not stand beside me. How heartbreaking for that moment to have been, for everyone in that courtroom to have watched that exchange between father and daughter. Stephen Bender's mom stepped up, the one that was nicknamed Peg. For her, it had been a roller coaster of emotions, anger, grief, and a nagging desire to want to find some forgiveness. She had really been all over the place with it, which is understandable. Every day brings a different round of sentiments that none of us can really get lest we've walked a mile in her shoes. She considered filing a wrongful death lawsuit against James and his parents, but then she opted not to. She openly stated that James should be made to pay a steep price for the grief that he's caused, but then she wanted the district attorney to show him mercy. But she also spends her time advocating for stricter laws when it comes to teenage drinking and the accessibility of alcohol to those under the legal drinking age. However, when the time came for her to deliver her impact statement, her feelings towards James somehow eased. James and her, Stephen, were best friends. When their family had moved to Orange County seven years earlier, her son had been bullied in middle school. He was awkward and overweight, and everyone poked fun at him. He had zero friends until James. He was the first one to step in and intervene. And instead of allowing this to hurt Stephen, he was able to turn it around and make it something funny to embrace. When one of the kids made fun of Stephen and told him that he looked like Piggy, the overweight boy in The Lord of the Flies, well, James thought that was hilarious yet fitting. And from then on, that would be Stephen's nickname. Own it. Make it yours, and they can't use it against you. And embrace it, her son did, over time. He didn't like it at first. Of course, nobody would, right? But James showed him how he could laugh at the self-depreciation of it all. James walked with him through it. And Stephen's mom knew that if it weren't for James, she's not sure her son would have made it as far as he did. And by the time Stephen hit his senior year, he was a towering six foot six or nearly two meters tall and one of the most popular 
lovable, fun-loving kids. Even when his friends gathered to pay their respects at his wake, they couldn't help but find laughter because that's who their friend was in life. He would be laughing right along with them. They were the best of friends, but they were also the best of troublemakers as well. And Stephen loved every single moment of it. His mom had no idea that her son had become the big guy on campus, the kid that all the friends flocked to. And after she died, she flipped through the pages of his yearbook and the sentiments were endearing, but there were also tributes to drinking and drugs. And she found what James had written in her son's yearbook. It read, I have watched you grow from a chubby little boy who was lost from the start into a tall drunk that is still lost. Good luck in whatever the hell you plan on doing with your life. I hope one day we can drink beers together as old men. Don't get too sober this summer. Remember, sober sucks. His mom told the hushed courtroom. They knew what they were doing when they went out into the desert. So James should be spared severe punishment. James will never slip again. I will always welcome James into our family. Stephen only wanted justice, not revenge. And before she sat back down, she stopped at James's table, leaned over and kissed him on the cheek. Some of the parents could do nothing but stare angrily as she did so. John Thornton's mother came up next. She had nothing to speak to but the pain and torment that her life had become since her son died. Every single day is filled with sorrow and every night is filled with heartbreak. Every dinner ends with leftovers when before, when she had her son with her, there would never be leftovers. And she went on. There are constant reminders that we have been robbed of his life. The life that would have taken care of his aquarium or train his new puppy or do chores around the house. She admits that her son was mischievous, but she believed that just before he died, he was making changes in his life, changes for the better. Her son hadn't graduated from Catella High. He had dropped out, but he earned his GED. Schoolwork was always second to everything else that her son wanted to do, whether it was snowboarding or mountain biking or tending to his fish tank. And that puppy? Well, John actually never got it. He chose a puppy and he was to receive it for his upcoming 19th birthday. And when he died, they forgot about it. But their other children hadn't. They still wanted the puppy, so... They brought it home. It was a constant reminder of their loss. But in a small way, it brought a little bit of light and hope and energy into their otherwise heartbroken existence. And in contrast to what the other parents had said, her son and James weren't that great of friends. She was under the impression her son didn't even really like James all that much. James drank too much and he kind of came off as a bully with a foul temper 
and even questioned in open court if James could have crashed on purpose because he was mad about something someone did or said. Did he lose it and start driving like a maniac to get back at one of them? She turned to James and said, The pain is so great. The loss of John has broken my heart. There are pieces missing that will never be replaced. And then she took his mother and father to task as well. They'd been so careless and inconsiderate in the wake of the accident. They'd done everything they possibly could to shun accountability. And then she turned back to James and told him that it would suit him to turn away from his family. It was too late for them to be redeemed, she said. But he still had a chance to make right in his life. And when he was done serving his punishment, he was going to get that chance. She also shamed the justice system and all of the attorneys working for James that brokered this sweetheart deal for him. Then John's mother put on display a picture of her son that she had enlarged. In it, John was laying in bed at the hospital, dead. With all the blunt force trauma injuries to his head and face that ended his life, it was hard to see the John that everyone had known. She told James to look, and he did. And she said to him, I don't know who this is. Do you recognize him? James looked away. All in all, the impact statements took four hours to get through. And when they were done, the judge finally spoke. In my personal opinion, we should be sitting here discussing how long Mr. Patterson goes to state prison. It's not even a close call. This offense just fell through the cracks and it really bothers me. All I can say to the families is I'm sorry we couldn't do more. He pointed to James's probation report. James is found largely to be remorseless. He points his fingers at everyone else at the same time failing to take responsibility for his own actions, further stating, when he talks about his use of alcohol, I do not get any sense that he thinks that he's got a problem. And that's what frustrates me more than anything, because he's going to get out and he's going to be back on the streets again. He does not feel that his consuming alcohol had anything to do with the accident. That is such a ludicrous statement that I'm embarrassed to read it. And with that, he accepted the deal for 120 days in jail that would start the day after James would finish his final exams at Catella High. In an article in the Los Angeles Times published one year after the crash, James talked about the day when nothing would ever be the same again. They wanted to take a short road trip, to hang out, to let loose, to have some fun before they had to get back to school for senior year. They talked about who to invite and what they might want to go do. Stephen, Pig, he came up with the idea to head to the desert. They liked that idea, and James could use his dad's Suburban. He also grabbed that 12-pack from his parents' fridge. They also made that stop at the liquor store, me and Paul's. They went there all the time for beer. James, reflecting back on it, said, I realize that we, 
myself included, had a problem with the drinking. We definitely did drink too much. But they really didn't think that they were doing anything all that bad. It was easy to get their hands on beer, and they usually drank at someone's house while their parents were home. And they made it a point to never drive while drunk. That was important to them because they knew and understood the dangers from all that they were told, not just by their parents, but also lectures and presentations at school. So they had arrived at their destination sometime after sunset. A fire was built and James sat down to have a beer. He would say that he had at least 10 beers that night. Next to him was Jonathan, just talking about life, what they had to look forward to beyond high school. Stephen and John were somewhere else nearby. They were smoking weed and acting silly. He saw Tony laying back, looking at the stars. Everybody was having beer. Not everyone was smoking weed. But James, he steered clear of marijuana. He had his sights set on getting into the military. He referenced the time that President Clinton was made to admit to the fact that he had once tried smoking weed but didn't inhale. He just didn't want to have to go there if he was ever asked. James decided to call it a night around one in the morning. He set himself up a place to sleep in the back of the Suburban and you know when you fall asleep into like that deep sleep and then you wake up and it only seems like a minute had passed but it actually been a few hours? That's what happened to James. He was jolted awake by the Suburban being rocked by his friends. They needed to get back into town for a ball game. James was still pretty groggy, but he got up and paced around for a bit, getting some air, trying to get clear and focused. He walked around and he could hear the guys discussing their seating arrangements for the ride back. It's eerie to think about that discussion. How any shift or change or if someone relented on a seating demand how it would ultimately determine who would live and who would die. My dad once told me a story way back when he was a kid, and my dad was a kid in the 1920s and 30s. And his dad, my grandpa, who I never knew because he passed away in 1941, was going to go golfing with two of his buddies when they were getting into the car. They flipped a coin to see who would get to ride shotgun. Well, my grandpa lost the coin toss and ended up in the back seat. They went on to get into a head-on collision with another vehicle and the driver and the front seat passenger both were killed instantly. But my grandpa survived. My dad was always haunted by chance, determined by heads or tails. These boys bickering about who was going to sit where in the Suburban reminded me of that and how their arrangement determine their fate. So James got into the driver's seat. Everyone else piled in all around him and they took off. They had only traveled about a quarter of a mile or just under half a kilometer along this bumpy dirt road. And in that short distance, police were able to determine, based on the number of times the vehicle rolled, that James was approaching 60 miles or 96.5 kilometers per hour but James doesn't think that he was going that fast. 
he suddenly began to feel the vehicle start to skid across the desert floor. And when his vehicle hit a berm, he lost control. It began its tumble, and he wasn't really feeling fear in the moment. He was thinking about how mad his parents were going to be that he rolled their SUV. And then the truck stopped rolling, and you're already in shock, and you're just like shaking and everything. And I look next to me, and Jonathan is laying down on the bench seat, and like he was just messed up. And I checked his pulse, and I knew he was dead right away. And it didn't even register. I was just like, God damn, Jonathan's dead. James got out of the vehicle through the window and checked on each of his friends. Stephen, sounds were coming from him. He could hardly believe that in a few months' time, he was going to have to say in open court that it was he who unlawfully and without gross negligence killed Stephen Bender, a human being. Stephen, in particular, that hit him hard. Of all the boys, they were the closest. James having said, I imagine losing him is a lot like losing a kid, just because of how close we were. He would say to all of the parents of all the boys who died that day that he does carry a huge burden of responsibility with him every single minute of every single day. But he still believes that all eight of them are liable. And because he was driving, he has turned into the scapegoat. Of his life up to that point, he was a good kid. For all the 17 years and 10 months, he worked hard at everything that he did. He listened to his parents. He consistently rose to the top of his class. His whole life had suddenly been defined by what he called this one slip up. He doesn't see himself as a terrible person that his friend's parents would like to make him out to be. He is not terrible. He's just like every other normal American teenager doing teenager things. And he accepted responsibility for his part in what happened. And at the time, he would say he was determined to show those who think that he is hopelessly ruined that he can prove them all wrong. James wanted to go to college. He wanted to earn a PhD. And with that, he wanted to do something that involved anything that he can do in the memory of his friends in some capacity in helping others. He does not think he was drunk when he woke up that morning to drive his friends home. He would say he wasn't feeling it. He felt like he was okay. He really doesn't know what to say beyond that, that he just didn't feel drunk. James was ordered by the judge on the case to hang pictures of the victims in his bedroom. And he was told by his best friend's dad, we forgive you, but with forgiveness comes responsibility. And you must dedicate your life, James, to make sure this will never happen again. James Patterson would not stick to his vow to never drink again. The memories of that day in 1995 when his four friends died seemed to have faded away. 
Ten years later, towards the end of 2006, James would be arrested not once, but twice for DUI, and he pleaded guilty both times. The brother of one of the victims, John Thornton, told the Orange County Register, he had the opportunity in life that his four victims didn't have. It's just tragic that he was unable to wrestle with his demons. He still has the opportunity to make change in his life. And I hope he makes that change before someone else is killed. I do not want to be having the same conversation in another 10 years. On Thanksgiving Day of 2006, James was pulled over and taken into custody after he was speeding, still in Anaheim. He didn't have his headlights on and he ran a red light. His blood alcohol content was 0.27. He was arraigned a few days later, at which time he pleaded guilty and he was given time served and ordered to attend counseling and given a fine. Then, just five days after that plea... He was pulled over again in Staten, a city just north of Anaheim. This time, his blood alcohol content was 0.11. Five days later, he pleaded guilty again and sentenced to 60 days in jail. That's two drunk driving convictions in less than two weeks. His recent arrests didn't surprise some people. Not everybody diluted themselves into thinking James would fix himself, mainly because he never admitted to having a drinking problem. Many of the details provided for you in our story today were published in an article in the Los Angeles Times in July of 1996 on the one-year anniversary of the deadly crash. And that brings this 86th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any of the others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases that we cover, as well as other current true crime stories other news events, other podcasts that we enjoy listening to, TV shows, documentaries, books, whatever you find and like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with the mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I am very proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of the shows on our network and our merchandise store. Or if you want to drop us an email and leave us a question or a comment or just tell us what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne, and until next time... 
sweet dreams.